So I'd like to continue the concept of relationship and community and look at that a little bit relative to post-COVID and what that ought to mean in community in churches and what that calls us to. And so as we do that, why don't you join me and let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, it's so great to be together here and to celebrate and remember the sacrifice of your son. And as we do that, and as we think about how that calls us towards you and calls us towards community with one another, uh, that that wouldn't be empty words, those wouldn't be church words that we speak without any reality, but that we would fight for the reality of community in a way that honors you and honors the sacrifice of your son. What he did for us, what he called us to through that, and what he created in us and through your body, which is the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've just come through one of the biggest, the widest, the most ubiquitous debates that I've seen, I think, in the church in my lifetime. I've been in this role, sort of, sort of working with 100 churches plus for now going on 13 years. And as is the case in churches, there's debates and there's occasional conflicts and crisis that happens because you've got people coming in from all kinds of walks of life and people, you know, bring their stuff with them and that's kind of normal. But I don't know that I've ever been, okay, I do know, I've never been in a time when it was as widely true as in the last year and a half in the debates within churches about opening or not opening, what that looks like, shouldn't look like, vaccines, not vaccines, all that kind of stuff. It's literally every church. And so I get phone calls every week, sometimes every day of every week, of people on either side of that particular issue wanting to debate that for the last year and a half till I was pretty sick of it. Could have put it on a recorder, just played the record button, clicked it, here's my answer. It was the same as it was yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. Could have just done that because it was just so frequent an occurrence. I talked to other guys who have my job across the country, Every single one of them had the same problem. I talked to various denominational groups. We would meet online Zoom calls about once a month we do that, and it's every denomination. It was everywhere, everywhere as a debate. And it makes sense that it is. It really makes sense because the two simple rules in a sense of making God happy, doing what God wants, are these simple things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Simply put, it's have a relationship with God and have a relationship with each other. That's the things you do if you want to please God. That's what it takes, in fact, Jesus said, to enter the kingdom of heaven, to enter heaven. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's relationship, relationship, relationship. God first people as well. And I think when we think about that, we, we buy it, we get the concept that relationship requires connection. It's kind of like salt and pepper or hot dogs and baseball or Baptists and arguments about vaccines or elections and lies. Take your pick what two things you want to put together, but it kind of goes together. The problem we have often in church, and I think it's true within our world, obviously, at large, but also true within church, is that we have trouble loving God and we have trouble loving our neighbor because we have trouble with legitimate relationship because we have trouble with authenticity. So if you track that, we have trouble with the relationships we should have with God and people because we have trouble 
with authenticity. That is telling the truth. So our relationships are often surface. They're at a level where this is the image we want to portray to people, and we give them that image, and so the relationships stay at that level. And so in my ministry experience, which I blinked and it turned out to be quite a few decades now, don't know quite how that happened, but in my ministry experience, it's been this long journey into understanding, recognizing the spiritual value of authenticity and vulnerability. That that's not just a concept you talk about in psychology, it's a spiritual value that is at the core of what we need to be talking about when we talk about relationship and community and gathering and being together, all of those things, because without those things, all we get is pseudo-community. We get a fake community working on the surface level. And until we address that, unless we start to delve into that in our own lives, in our own person, there's little point in worrying about when we will gather together again. And what I think got revealed in the church at large and most individual churches throughout COVID was that a lot of our gathering was pseudo-community. And the cracks that occurred were because we had not got to levels of authenticity and connection and truth that allowed us to sustain through some challenging kinds of times. We became, I think, as people, and we do this in the church a lot, unfortunately, we all do this in the church, I certainly include myself, so addicted to approval that we become plastic in our approach to one another. What we see is the image we want to portray instead of reality. So I was thinking about that and I was reminded of it because I read in a, well, an online article from Vancouver Sun just a couple of weeks ago about a display that I had read about actually 10 years or more ago called Body World. Have any of you ever heard of Body World, the display? So it started a long time ago, but it's now the article that I read recently was that it's past 17 million people who've gone to see this display in most every major city of the world, and it continues on strongly, <laughs> and it is a weird display. So it's a display of muscle formation, of layers of the brain, of the nervous system, of all kinds of things, some of them quite gruesome, all about people. For example, one man skinned holding his skin. It's like a gruesome display called Body World. But here's the thing that makes it most gruesome, is that it's a technology that allows colored plastination of the human body. So every display is an actual person. It's not a wax figure, it's a person. And they can color code it through the way they do the plastination of the cells of the human body so they can show the spinal system or the brain or various things. And there's this display, 17 million people have seen it. You can Google it if you're, you know, wanting to see a little horror show of your own <laughs> and experience how that goes. I think it's kind of impossible, and I wondered to myself of that 17 million people if, you know, 16.9 million of them walking through there thought that that was a metaphor for our culture. That's how we live. We've plastinated ourselves. We create this world that's uh, not telling the truth about who we are. It just is an image that we're portraying. Now, when I'm saying that, let me just clarify. I realize that we can't and shouldn't tell everybody everything. So that's not what I'm talking about today. Appropriate self-disclosure doesn't mean hanging out all your dirty clothes in every issue of your life for everybody to see every day of your life. That would be a horribly bad idea not suggesting that you do that at all, or that that's a good idea. 
And I realize that there are people you can tell the truth to, and there are people that are not trustworthy with the truth that need to grow in their own maturity before you would engage them in that conversation. That's a reality that we learn as we grow up as well, that there is some judgment required in doing this. But I also realize, and I see this in church all the time, and generally when I'm using the term in church, I mean broad scale because I see it in many, many churches, is that we continually pose ourselves. We fake it. We just fake it. So social scientists would tell us that most people, maybe everybody, are a fraud from time to time. We pretend to know things we don't know, to achieve things we never achieved. We pretend to be smarter, to be happier, to be kinder, to be stronger, to be humbler, to be cleaner, to be better than we are. So we could do that this morning. We could have like a little confessathon. We could start with Candace, kind of work around. We'll each do like our confession, remembering that confession is good for the soul, and if you do it, God will forgive you, and just, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we'll just start here, go right around confessing. What do we pretend are fake most recently? And all of us could answer that, unless we're lying to ourselves as much as we lie to everybody else. We could answer it. You know, you've ever been maybe watching TV at home and somebody drove up in a car and it's friends or a spouse or roommates or whatever it may be, and you turn off the TV and pretend that you're doing something productive. That ever happened to any of you? Probably not. Probably just me that would do that. Or perhaps, you know, you've had an argument in your house about cleaning the house before somebody comes over and that argument degenerated into immediately... And if you have kids who don't want to help you clean, they immediately said, well, wow, you're just lying to everybody who's coming when you clean your house. Ever heard somebody mention a book title or a movie title, and they're part of that discussion, they started discussing you know, how significant that was to understand what's going on in that book or movie, and you nod and pretend you've seen them or read them and you never did. You, know, you just didn't want to look like you were completely out of touch. That ever happened to any of you? How about driving and there's a person in another lane who's trying to catch your eye so that you won't let them merge, and that's one issue of its own about kindness and gentleness. We're not getting into that, but you don't want any eye contact, so you pretend you don't see them because you have no intention of letting them in. But the way you're going to do it is just pretend that you don't see them there at all. Or maybe you came to church and you had an argument with somebody or your spouse or a kid or whoever in your family and you're pretty angry with each other, but you come in here, you put on a happy face and it's like, okay, but we'll talk about this later. While we're here, let's just look like we're happy. That ever happen? I could go on and on and on and on. My point's this, everybody hides. Everybody hides. It's a natural human reaction for sin-drenched people. And that's what we are. So take a look with me, because it's part of the human psyche that goes back from the time of Adam. So if you look in Genesis chapter 3, right at the very beginning of the problems of humanity, and if you have a Bible with you, paper or digital, whatever that may, is, that may be, Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 to 13. Let me just set the story for you and remind you of the story. So it begins with Eve. Eve is desiring fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she's told that if she eats that fruit, it's going to be, she will be just like God and know good from evil, and everything's going to be great for her. 
And so she eats the fruit. And then this is what happens starting in Genesis 3, verse 6. And the serpent, who we were already told was super crafty, had come and said to her, look, you're not going to die. Nothing bad will happen. In verse 6, it says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, that is Adam, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed sigly fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, but I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This story of endless um, hiding, lying, deceiving, blaming, all those kinds of things are going on in that story. So the obvious way that they first hid is they sewed clothes for themselves. They felt shame. They lost innocence right from the very beginning. And what was part of a healthy relationship now became distorted by dis disobedience, by dysfunction. They start to cover up. They hear God walking in the garden. And what does it tell us they did? They hid. And not just then concealment from each other, which is what they just did. They're now concealing themselves from God. And by eating the fruit, rather than becoming like God, they lost their relationship with God. And then they started to blame each other. And so they have this classic passage where Adam starts with his double blame. And he says to God, God, hey, this is not my fault. This is really your fault. It was the woman who led me astray. And let's face it, you put her here. Like, this would never have happened if you hadn't done this, God. And it's pretty much been women's fault ever since. Let's face it. That's been our most favorite thing. Eve, on the other hand, starts looking around, and Eve says, well, it's not my fault. It's the serpent that tricked me. It's somebody else's fault. Blame, which is just another way of hiding, another way of concealing what's going on. Hiding, blaming, uh, trying to not deal with what's going on in their own life. And not a lot has changed since that time. It's called the fall, and it's at the core of everything we read in the Bible, and it's at the core of all sin that's ever come from that root, ever. And at the very beginning of it, it was hiding, looking for ways, looking for places to hide. And sometimes we're like they were, hiding sin. Sometimes we're hiding shame. Sometimes we're hiding uh, behind personality, and we say things like, it's just the way we are. Just the way we, our personality roles, we're introverted or we're extroverted, we're this or we're that. It's just who we are. We don't want somebody to know, you know, that we failed and our pride is something we're trying to hide or hide away from the issues of our pride. We're not as good as we hope we would be. We're hiding behind superficial conversation or small talk or weather or sports and we're hiding behind humor and we're hiding behind intensity and busyness, and work, and competence, and spirituality, and religion, and spirituality and religion are incredibly great at helping you to hide if you want to use them that way, but hiding is something we do. We're really good at it. We're naturally good at it. 
Paul Tournier, a psychologist, wrote that each of us does his best to hide behind a shield. For one, it's a mysterious silence that constitutes an impenetrable retreat. For another, it's facile chit-chat. One hides behind his timidity so that we can't say, find anything to say to him. Another behind brazen self-assurance, which renders him invulnerable. And we get used to it. We think it's just normal. It's the way we operate. Uh, we go in our small group. We meet in our church. We get in conversations. Uh, we don't push to the depths of what's going on in our own life. And if we even find out that what that is and we deal with it, we don't want to tell anybody what that is. But there's huge danger to that. Huge danger to that. First, of course, because God knows the reality already. So it's kind of silly to be trying to hide from God and that, and God doesn't get deceived when we try to deceive him. But let's look at another story and see how that danger that is lying to God and to other people actually starts to look like. So if you look in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 5, there's a very famous story, another famous story, about Ananias and Sapphira. So Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. It says, Now a man named Ananias, and this is in the story of the early church, man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Now, don't just waft over that. Stop and read and hear those words. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied not just to human beings, but to God. So let me remind you of the scene of what's going on when this happens. It's a story and part of the early church, and the church of Jesus Christ is just being formed it's miraculous, it's amazing, great things are being done. If you look back in Acts 2 and Acts 3, Acts 4, leading into this, it says thousands were added to the church that day. People were coming to the church every day. Their lives were being transformed. They were coming to know Jesus Christ. They were being pulled out of society where there was all kinds of lying, all kinds of hatred, all kinds of values that had nothing to do with God. And people far from God are becoming close to him. People who have spent their whole life hiding or coming out of hiding and giving their life to Jesus and opening themselves to him and to his spirit and to one another. There's this amazing thing going on where people who used to hate each other are becoming one and the walls and the barriers that were so deep that divided people that felt like they were insurmountable were being shattered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this church, the church was being formed there's the male and female divide, gone, Jew and Greek, gone, rich and poor, gone, slave and free, gone. And as that happened, ordinary people, just regular people, were seeing the needs of others and they were feeling generous and wanting to help them out of grateful, generous hearts, seeing what Jesus had done for them and wanting to share it with other people. It's an amazing thing, the formation of the church. And they were taking some of the things that they owned and they were selling them and giving their money to people who needed it so that they could have a better life. One of them, we're told at the end of chapter 4, was so good at encouraging people and supporting people. His name was Joseph, but he was so good, they started calling him Barnabas just because that was his nickname. It meant son of encouragement. He was an encourager. He kept helping people over and over. 
But in this story, Ananias and Sapphira want in on that action. They want to be as spiritual as everybody else. They want to look as good as other people. They want to outgive, outsacrifice, outspiritual their opponents. And so they sell their land and they give the money. Here's the problem. They pretended to give it all and held some of it back. What were they after? What were they after? Yeah, they wanted approval. They want people to look at them and say, isn't that great? Isn't that great? Look how good they are. But they sought it through a lie. They gave an image, a pretense, of something that they weren't in the process of doing. And we're told in this passage that when they did that, they lied to the people of the church and they lied to the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty serious thing. Because all through the book of Acts, the church and the Holy Spirit are interconnected. It isn't like there's one thing. You do something in a church and it's not affecting what goes on anywhere else. When you lie to the church, you lie to the Spirit of God. I mean, just think about that and understand what's going on. If you wound the church, you wound the Spirit. And these guys were wounding it through lying about what they gave. They made an active choice to use the church rather than serve the church, all to try and drive up their own approval rating. To have people see something that wasn't true. And that choice, according to Peter, originated, words of the Bible, in the mind of Satan. So not lightweight. When we start talking about relationship, about telling the truth, about not living with pretense, about uh, revealing what's going on in our own life, telling people the truth about what that is, about not seeking approval, but living with authenticity, not doing that originates in the mind of Satan. Not doing that hurts the church. Not doing that wounds the Spirit of God. Not really a touchy-feely thing. And the sad part of this story, the really sad part of this story, is that there was no rule that they had to give anything. They were fine just the way they were in the church. They never had to sell their property and give a cent. And if they did and they gave 5%, that was generous of them. God would be pleased. People would be helped. That would have been great. They could have given 10%. That would have been awesome. 50% didn't matter. The number didn't matter. Giving anything didn't matter. What mattered was the pretense about it. What mattered was the lying about it. And it is a tricky tricky business because the temptation to use or to violate the church community or even to use spirituality for personal approval points is still there happens all the time in church all the time in all kinds of very insidious kinds of ways so i go in a bible study and i study the bible ahead of time and to get there in that bible study in that small group meeting so that when we have the discussion i know more than other people because I really like it when I get in that small group and they think I know more than them. Makes me feel good about myself. Look how smart I am. And when I do it, I violate the church. Not that you studied, just like it didn't matter whether or not Ananias and Sapphira gave money or didn't give money or the amount they gave, but the reason you did it. Approval, image, when I try to show people how spiritual I am by hiding my struggles in a church and say, I don't have that issue. That's not my problem. 
pretense, it's image, it's falsehood, it violates the church, it violates the spirit, it wounds the spirit of God. When I have to win an argument and I have to be right in every situation, it does the same thing. And every one of us have moments where we choose our path in that. And it re happens over and over and over. And I, um, okay, I said, don't want to offend you, but kind of I do. So <laughs> we all do it. That's my point. I don't think we could go through here and if we told the truth, and if you said, I've never done that ever, I'd say you're a liar and you're doing it for the sake of approval. That's what I'd say to you. And that's what you should say to me. Because we live in a sin-drenched society founded in the fall, where the fall was all about hiding. So that we can get approval. And in this story, we're told that Ananias died when that's happened. Then in verse 7, it says that Sapphira came in. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, and this is kind of tricky and almost mean, but we weren't going to get into that because that's a separate discussion. Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? You said you got $10,000. Is that the price, Sapphira? Did you give it all? It's a moment of decision for her, just like it was for Ananias. And Peter says that to her, and she says, yes, that is the price. And Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out also. You need to take that pretty seriously. Peter gives her a chance to tell the truth. It's her moment, it's her time, it's her opportunity, and she chooses the lie. She chooses the pretense, the image, the approval over the truth. So let me summarize this again. Authenticity, that is, a lack of pretense, matters to God. It matters to Jesus in the church. So contrary to what most of us think, it's not innocuous, it's not victimless, it has serious danger built in. So biblically, lies to the church and to one another for the sake of approval are lies to the Holy Spirit. That's what we just read. Biblically, lies to the Holy Spirit are spawned in the heart of Satan. It's what we just read. Biblically, there are consequences to lying to God. So I'm giving you a kind of a bang, 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 because we look at this all the time and we think of this as a soft skill. Telling the truth, being vulnerable, being authentic, communicating in that way, helping one another to grow by telling the truth and the struggles we have in our own life. That that's just a nice thing we could do. That's not what the Bible says about it. And when we start to lie about that, we start again to become people in hiding, pointing blame all over the place. An authentic community doesn't take place. And there are moments of truth like that in churches, in all of our churches, for all of us. So I'm pretty sure that for each of you, for those of you that are online, that what you want for each person at Ocean View is a serious, meaningful set of deep relationships. You want that for yourself, and you want that for other people. That's my guess. I've yet to go to a church where people don't look for that, aren't desperate for that. And we've prayed for that as churches. And as COVID has gone on, we've discussed gathering and meeting and community and how important that is. And we've prayed and begged for authentic, real-world Christian community. We've argued whether we should argue with the government or take them to court, all those kinds of things, for the sake of community. True? In every church 
I know of, and I know a lot of churches. So I'm not suggesting some kind of weird cult thing. I'm not saying someone, you know, you should drink Kool-Aid, play with snakes, sign over your mortgage to the church. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm not asking you to shave your head, not asking you to wear a robe, change your name to Grasshopper. None of those are necessary for this. I'm not asking you to tell every nasty deed and evil thought that ever crossed your mind to anyone who'd listen. Not talking about that, not suggesting that, not saying you should reveal every painful thing that ever occurred to you anytime. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying, don't we want transparent lives that acknowledge our need for each other because we realize that none of us has it together and all of us are desperate for approval and all of us fight with this idea of pretense and the only way we're ever going to beat it is to allow the Holy Spirit to plumb the depths of who we are so authenticity becomes part of what after. Isn't that what we've asked for? And we can only experience grace and love to the degree that people know who we really are. And we all have moments of truth where we have to decide what are we going to do with it? What are we going to say? Approval, image, what it looks like, or the truth? What are we going to do? So when we strip the Christian life down to the two basic things, we come down to these two things. It's what Jesus taught. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. What does an approval addiction, what does plastic living cost us? Our relationship with God, our relationship with people. What does Jesus tell us to do? Have a relationship with God, have a relationship with people. And yet in church after church, we argue for the case of community, of authenticity, of meeting together, of gathering. We can be mad at the government, and yet we don't do the work internally to get the community we have to have doing the things that God demands we do, saying that when we don't do it, it's spawned in the heart of Satan, and it wounds the church. So, for Fellowship Pacific as a group and for our own staff in here, we spend a lot of time on this stuff. People occasionally come to us and say, like, you spent a lot of money and time and your staff on, on self-deception and telling the truth and team building and Berkman and Berkman team and all kinds of kind of stuff to do that. And that's true. We do. Unapologetically do. And we go to church after church after church and say, so should you. You need to spend the money, you need to spend the time, you need to do the work, because when we talk about authenticity and vulnerability and truth-telling and trust and all those kinds of things, it does not happen magically. It happens by us doing the work and experiencing the pain that's required for that kind of truth so that you can have the community that God offers and God demands. I was looking at... Um, online earlier this week, actually, a BBC documentary called Dreams of a Life, and when I was looking at it, it reminded me of a story that I read, um, I don't even remember where I read it, uh, read it over 10 years ago of a person named Joanna Pope who was in Madisonville, Ohio, and so it was a family whose mother was a Christ follower, at least claimed to be, and was pretty sure Jesus was coming back really soon, and didn't want to be cremated or buried, just wanted to be left when she died, watching TV to be specific. So for two and a half years, 
the family in the house left her in her room upstairs in the chair watching TV, and one of them would go up once a day to check that the TV was still on. Try and think of that. Exactly. You see, you're, you're squinting like, what? Exactly. That's what I said. Like, what? So I actually Googled it again this week to be sure it was actually true because I was remembering it. Is that, have I got the details on this right? Because this sounds... But that's what the documentary is about, actually, about a person who was left by themselves for three years and no one went and checked on them at all. This is a slightly different story. But even if it wasn't creepy, it's super hard to understand. Like, doesn't the family get she's not watching TV? I mean, that seems to be the first thing. Like, why would you go every day to check that she's watching TV? And don't they understand that they're helping a dead person pretend to be watching pretend people living a pretend life? Do they not get that at all? It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And then I wonder about the church. Church in North America, maybe the church around the world. Maybe our Fellowship Pacific churches. Maybe this church. Maybe you. Maybe me. Because how is that different from faking who we are, not telling the truth, not being vulnerable in church, pretending something whenever we meet in order to get approval so that we can have the approval of people who don't even know who we are. Why would we do that? We want to be accepted. We want to be approved. We want to belong. I get that. We all want that. And so we pretend, living up to a false image in the hopes that that'll get the approval like Adam and Eve in the garden, like Ananias and Sapphira, in the process of doing that, I lose the very thing I'm after. Relationship with God and relationship with people. So here's my encouragement to you today. I'm pretty sure as a church, you cared whether or not the church opened up again throughout COVID. I'm sure you had lots of discussions about whether it should or it shouldn't, what the government should or shouldn't be allowed to do, what our rights were or weren't, all of that stuff. I'm pretty sure you had those because every church had those. My encouragement is maybe moving forward post-COVID, we ought to work just as hard at opening ourselves as we did opening the church because maybe that would please God just as much. Let's pray together. Father, in one sense these seem like uh, such easy words, just tell the truth, be vulnerable, be authentic. Be, uh, and yet we know that for each of us it's a struggle to do, and depending who the person is, it's easier or harder to do it with them. Depending on the culture of a church, it's easier or harder. All those things are true. We know some people are trustworthy, some aren't. We know the dangers of telling the truth. Father, all of those things are part of the world we live in, part of the life we live, and yet we know you called us to be transformed people where something different is true. So give us the courage, the insight in ourselves to understand what we're doing and why we're doing it, and so to build a community that honors you based on authenticity, based on truth, knowing that your grace is sufficient your grace is enough. That what you've done for us on the cross, our identity found in you, answers every question of our heart of who we are and finds approval in you through Jesus. And we claim that, we ask that, we want that in the name of Jesus Christ who is our Savior. Amen.